Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upburnfrisco.com. Who was, uh, by show of hands, who was here last week? Um, if you weren't here, there was something really beautiful that happened during worship last week where we were kind of ministering to him and suddenly it kind of, we kind of felt like the Lord flipped the script and he wanted to pour out on people. And um, it was a time of receiving. And, and if you read this wall and you know anything about being in this place, being in an upper room, is we are really about ministering to God's heart. Um, and sometimes people can think that, like, church has to be either this or this. Like, it either has to be horizontal or it has to be vertical. And um, what I think it is is I think it goes like this. Or it goes like this. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I, you know, if your heart was tugging in that moment last week, because we had people come up here to the front and get all in here and get on the floor and, and receive affection and love from our good father. And it was really, really powerful. It kind of took over service. And then Jeremy gave like a 60-second message, and it was great. Because um, what was really meant to happen happened here on this floor. Um, Oh, but he's a dad who really enjoys when, when, when we receive from him and when we enjoy one another. We have five kids, and I mean, how many of you guys know it's somewhat of a miracle when five kids are all, like, really getting along and enjoying each other? It, like, suddenly gets really quiet in the house, and either something really good is happening or something really bad is happening. But you begin to hear them playing and talking back and forth to one another and giggling and even the baby is up there, you know, and, and you, and, and I, as a parent, I get drawn into it. Like I want to go peek. I don't want to like, I don't even know that I want to even get into it. I just want to peek around the corner and I want to watch. I want to see, and I want to get to like experience them really enjoying one another. And, um, it's like, then my love for them begins to pour out. And I feel like God does that when he sees us worshiping, enjoying each other, enjoying him. There's something beautiful about a corporate beholding because he's a really good dad. And um, I, I felt a little funny uh, asking Jeremy if I could speak on Father's Day because I'm a woman. And I'm not a father, but um, I am a daughter. And I wanted to speak out of that place today. So is that cool? Okay. Um, if we don't learn how to be daughters and sons fathered by God, we will replicate the systems that were modeled for us. Who else manifested their parents on their kids this week? <laughs> Just me? <laughs> um, there are moments where it gets a, a little bit... Uh, rough sometimes in parenting and a lot of it comes from the fact that it's a moment where I get scared. I get scared of their behavior and the way that they're acting out and usually in that moment I, I tend to forget who I am because I'm so scared about who they might be. Um, so my kids have this thing where as professional mess makers they um, you know, they, they make a mistake or they make a mess and they always follow it with, it was an accident. You know, everything from like dropping a teapot that belonged to someone else in the family or hitting their sister with a bat. 
it was an accident. I don't know if they didn't realize that the force would cause someone to cry or they just weren't paying attention as it was being wielded. But it was an accident. It gets said a lot in my house. Um, kids are so funny because it's like they have this expectation that they can learn things through failure. As if none of us do that, right? But it does. Sometimes it freaks me out a little bit because my kids are making mistakes on their way to learning how to not make mistakes, but in the process, they have to make mistakes, right? Anybody else do that still? Yeah. When I manifest what was modeled for me, it's usually less about their behavior and more about my inner world being confronted by my lack of identity as God's daughter. Can you guys turn to Luke 3, the end of Luke 3, those of you who've got the old Bibles? End of Luke 3 is uh, when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Now when all these people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And then let's go to the beginning of chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. <clears throat> Jesus has just been given identity from the Father, and the first thing he's confronted with is, If you are the Son of God. God can tell us all day, you're my kid, you're my kid, you're my kid, I love you, I delight in you. And, and let's just go back to understanding that when the Lord says this to Jesus, he hasn't done anything yet. I delight in you before you've done anything. But then when he goes to the devil, he gets challenged by him. The first thing he gets challenged on is that identity that he was just given. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, is how he begins. And we know what happens after that. Jesus is victorious, and he leaves the wilderness with the Holy Spirit and power. And then he goes to Nazareth. So let's skip going to where he goes to Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? Okay. So now he's back home. He's in Nazareth. He's got his identity. He withstood the attack of the enemy. And then suddenly he's doing some really marvelous works. And everyone's like, look at Joseph's son. Look at him. More identity of saying, ooh, he belongs to Joseph. He belongs to us. And then they continue, and suddenly he... So uh, then Jesus begins to speak again, and suddenly it switches in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went, he went away. So it went from like, oh, he's, he's, he belongs to us, to no, 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 you're just Joseph's son. Is anybody identifying with some of the things identity-wise that Jesus had to go through, whether it was from the enemy trying to tell him who he was or wasn't, to then over here, family trying to tell you who you are or aren't? Anyone from a Latin family? Um, just that, that ownership of, of the success being collective to suddenly, when you begin to get to above yourself, no, it's, this is just who you are. All right, let's keep going. And Jesus went to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was no man who had a spirit of an unclean there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice ha what have you come to do with us Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us i know who you are the holy one of god but Jesus rebuked him saying be silent and come out of him and when the demon was it had thrown him down in their midst he came out of him having done him no harm and they were all amazed to another saying what is this word and then we're going to skip down a little bit further to verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them. It would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So suddenly you've got demons who actually are accurately telling him who he is. But he rebukes them. Why? It says right here. Because they knew that he was the Christ. I've had prophetic words over my life, and I hold them in tension with the development of my character and the timing of the Lord. Sometimes in our identity as children of God, there are people that will want to call us into something before it's time. I know it, but the declaration of it is not time for it yet. Is any of this, anybody kind of catching this? Jesus was in a battle and a war over his identity as a son. If he has to do it, why wouldn't we have to do it? What is he called like the most? Son of God, son of man, son of David. 
He was a son. And I think that proves to us how important sonship is. But I also feel like it's something that we've, we've lost a little bit. Like, we, we actually have gotten pretty good at doing this. But the sitting and the receiving and the listening, rest, we've, we've confused what rest is a little bit, right? Rest kind of looks like escape in our culture. But the kind of rest that restores looks like receiving. I'm a leader. I think everyone in this room is a steward at some level in this house. I've been given the, the, the gift of steward, being able to steward a piece of what this house is. Um, I'm a mom. I am a wife. But I'm a follower first. I'm a daughter first. There's a lot of, and, and don't get me wrong when I say that, I care a lot about what it looks like to avoid toxic leadership, to grow and to pursue excellence. But first and foremost, I have to know how to be a follower and I have to know how to be a daughter because I can't do the other one well if I don't know that one. I want to propose to you that every man in this room is a father. And every woman in this room is a mother. I know that today is a day that can have a lot of emotions attached to it. People that have lost their fathers, people whose fathers haven't maybe been up to the mark, people who are stepfathers, and it is not always easy. People who have prodigals. There is so much about this day that can be painful, but I really want to focus on God the Father this morning. Um, there are a lot of versions of fathers. Um, some of you guys know my story. I've, I've been blessed with many fathers in my life. That's why I, I feel so strongly about getting up here and speaking as a do uh, daughter. There are um, this analogy I like to use where, I mean, some of us may have not had the father that we hoped we'd have, or honestly, maybe we had a great dad, but he wasn't perfect. And before I even go any further, I just want to release something. I felt this during worship to say to the dads in this room, to the fathers in this room, you are not meant to be perfect, and you are not meant to have every single perfect gift, because that's not your role. If you would, if you did, we would have no reason for the Father. You are not going to get it 100% right, and there's grace for that. That's why it exists. Same with moms. You are not going to get it right 100% of the time. So in my life, there have been many versions of fathers. I feel like a lot of times we're praying, we're like, God, send me a father. God, send me a father. And our father looks like a boat. Let's say you're on an ocean, and it's been a flood. 
and you're like, God, I want a boat, and you're sitting there and you're praying real hard for a boat, and some driftwood comes by, and you're like, it's not a boat. And then a raft comes by, and you're like, but it's not a boat, because you're waiting for a boat, and God's like, I keep sending stuff to you. Because here's the truth. There are men in this room who are fathers. Maybe, maybe you're safe financially. And you're someone that can father people and their finances. Maybe you're heart safe. You know about emotions and you care a lot about emotions. Maybe you love adventure and you have something to give with adventure. Being discipled... A lot of times I feel like people are waiting for someone to see something in them and pursue them and disciple them. When the truth is, discipleship, fathering looks a lot more like Jacob and the angel. It looks like wrestling and saying, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. And we're all so freaked out of being rejected. And the truth is, sometimes getting discipled, getting fathered hurts. Jacob walked away from that exchange with a limp. But he didn't want to let go until he got blessed. Can you guys turn to Nehemiah? Ooh, I love Nehemiah. There's baby Nehemiah right back there. Nehemiah is absolutely hands down one of my favorite biblical characters. He does not get talked about enough. He was an amazing leader. He was a governor of Judah and Jerusalem after Babylonian captivity. He grew up in Persia, but he went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and to, he reset the political and religious systems of the day. But I think the, that while what he did in Jerusalem is incredibly important, it speaks a lot to leadership, I want to focus on the first two chapters of Nehemiah because I think they're profound at explaining the, ne the next 11. So Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 1, the beginning of Nehemiah 1. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who, have had, who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So not only is, does he want to go home to help his people, but he's dealing with a broken people. You know who's hard to lead? Broken people. Now, here's, here's something you need to know about chapter 2. Again, this is, to me, this is an Esther-type moment. Because Nehemiah's role, his job, was actually as a cupbearer to the king. And while some of his family went back to Jerusalem, he stayed as a cupbearer to the king. To King Artaxerxes in the Persian court. Now, it was a rule in the Persian court that you weren't allowed to show sadness in front of the king. But Nehemiah is carrying this burden. All the rest of chapter one is him 
fasting and praying and weeping and taking the, the thing that the calling, the carry thing he's carrying in his heart before the Lord. And then finally the day comes where in, in two it says, now I had not been sad in his presence, in the king's presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river and they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, to that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates, for the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Okay, I know that was a lot, but here's the deal. When the king, when this Esther moment came, the thing that Nehemiah had been carrying in this moment when the king said, what do you need? He knew exactly what to ask for. I need a letter. I need it signed. I need timber. I need this. And so you have a foreign king financing the rebuilding of a Jewish city and Nehemiah getting to know exactly, getting there, he's able to go through barricades, guards, everything like that in later chapters. And he knows how to deal with foreign powers trying to come in and tell him what to do. And why? Because he sat there by the king. He's watched the king that he was placed under. A foreign king, someone who didn't know God, and yet he was able to glean from him. So when such a time as this, as the calling on his life was happening, suddenly he knows exactly what to do. A lot of us are waiting for a boat and God is sending us rafts, but we need to start praying and asking God, where are my rafts? Who are the fathers in my life? What have you placed around me that is going to help me in the areas where I actually feel like I'm lacking? Because the truth is, you aren't made to be a perfect father. But there are people, if we have the eyes to see, that are around us. If we learn how to be sons and daughters that want to be there for us in the lack. I went to uh, YWAM when I was 19, Youth with a Mission. And I was really freaked out because I was pretty newly saved and I walked into the room and I suddenly thought to myself, oh my God, they're gonna make me pray out loud. That was my biggest fear. And then they had a lady come in and she started talking to us about how to hear from God. Now this wasn't totally foreign to me. That's how my, I had gotten saved because my mom had gotten radically saved by hearing the voice of God. So I was like, oh, okay, the voice of God, cool. And so I'm like, this is nice, we're learning this. And she's like, okay, now we've given you some tools. You're gonna go outside for 45 minutes and you're gonna ask God two questions. Who are you to me and who am I to you? And then we're gonna come back in here and we're gonna tell everyone what you heard. And I was like, can we go back to praying out loud? 
But I did. I went outside and I stared at a blade of grass and sky for a while. I'm like, oh, something from God. Something from God. Something from God. And uh, I, I actually, I finally got out my journal and just began writing things down. Which, side note, a little bit of a bunny trail. I, I highly, highly recommend journals. I will tell you guys that um, a lot of times if I'm struggling to pray and I feel really dumb doing it, Writing out what I want to say to him helps me process the things I'm in, that are in my heart. A lot of times I'll be sitting in this room, I'll be sitting somewhere else, I'll have my journal, I'll be in the prayer room, and a feeling or an emotion will pop up or a thought about a person, and I'll write it down. Because in that moment, I'm, I don't know that I, what, it, what it is or what it means, I just know that it's a feeling that I can't place, an emotion I can't place. And it isn't until later with the Lord that I can actually kind of process and be like, oh, I remember that moment. So I was in the, the process of learning how to do this. And so I'm sitting there. I get out my journal, and I write down. I start writing down a list of God's attributes, the things that I just, the deep things that I feel. And then this little thought pops in my head, and it was like, read that list. And so I reread the list, and the list said, who does that describe? Or the thought said, who does that describe? And I said, oh, that describes my dad. Things... Like, I didn't trust him. I didn't trust the Lord. And I didn't think he would be there for me. And, and that wasn't God's nature. That was what I was carrying from my dad. And I had given my life to the Lord, but later on, a couple months later, I found myself on outreach in Thailand, in Chiang Mai, and um, it, long story, but I, I broke my foot the first day. And so when everybody went on like a really cool to the hills outreach, I had to stay behind in the city because I couldn't, I couldn't get around because I had my little hobble foot. But during that time when I was alone and everything got really quiet, actually at 4 a.m. on the floor in, on, on, you know, in Thailand, I really feel like God really showed me who I am to him. He began to reveal the cross and the love story that I have with him and how he died for me and how he'd do it again. And I think that's where I really started to become a daughter. Because something I've learned about myself is I'm really good at being a daughter when I'm not trying to hold up the world on my own when I'm not trying to control it, when I'm not trying to do everything in my own strength. I'm really good at being a daughter. And learning how to be his daughter taught me how to actually be a daughter to my dad who was not always great at being a dad. I'll tell you this, my father has been an excellent provider. He taught me a sense of adventure. But God also brought my stepfather, who was the first man who really listened to me when I spoke. And he began to heal my heart and love my mom in a way that I was able to accept love from my husband one day in that same way. So if you're a stepdad in here, I want you to know that you're important. Your stepmom, I want you to know that it's important, that it actually matters 
to the stepkids that you have, that you love them faithfully. Unconditional love matters. There's a lot of noise, a lot of voices, but people remember love. And God was really gracious, and for a season in my life, he sent an older 60-year-old man named Gary, and Gary walked me through forgiveness of my dad, which led me on a new journey. And I've spoken about this story quite a bit, but it's because it's really powerful to me. It's, he had me write a letter and put in that letter all the things I wanted to say to my dad. All the abuse, the stuff that, and I just, I wrote that letter. I wrote it. And he said, good job, kiddo. Now burn it. You have to be able to let him off the hook without him ever knowing how he's hurt you. Because that's what Jesus did. He died for all his kids, and there's still a bunch walking around that don't even understand the depth of it. And if only they could. We could heal an epidemic of fatherlessness and unworthiness. But when I took that letter and I burned it, or honestly, I lost it, because let's be real, for a while I kept it in my Bible because I wasn't ready to let it go yet. I didn't know that I believed that God was that good. And so that letter to me, the Lord has spoken to me since it kind of symbolized a seed. How many of you know that when a seed goes in the ground, it actually has to die in order to sprout something new? That letter was my seed, and it died. And for 20 years... I prayed for my dad from a new place. And about 10 years in, I started learning about emotional health and how to have healthy, direct conversations with my dad to say, hey, your behavior is not who you are, but your behavior is not okay. There's nothing that you can do that will make me not love you, but this behavior is not okay. And this year, at 62 years old, my father went to rehab. And I've gone back and forth with how much to share about this story because it is precious. But I also believe that a spirit, ugh, a testimony releases a spirit of prophecy. And I was expecting to hear a, hear a phone call that said my father was dead before I heard my father's getting sober. And so in the month of May, I flew to Florida for the last week of my dad's rehab. And during that week, my entire family, my four sisters, my stepmom, my dad, we all had to sit through eight hours a day of, of addiction education and healthy emotional family systems therapy. Can y'all imagine the gift? Like, and I got to sit in a room where my dad felt safe, I felt safe, and I got to finally say those things I'd always meant, wanted to say since a little girl, but it was over time, it had been healed, it had been softened in me. My seed died and it sprouted into something bigger that wasn't just for me, it affected my whole family. That's a testimony of the power of being a son or a daughter before the Lord, 
Letting him be the one to affect the people around you. Letting him being the one to order your steps. My family's changed. I can testify. I've got a testimony of Jesus healing and changing my family. And it all came because I, I learned how to receive his love at 4 a.m. on a floor in Thailand. <laughs> and I want the worship team to come back up. I want us to kind of have another chance at receiving this morning. We're going to dim the lights. We're going to have the worship team come. We're going to worship the Lord, but I want this to be unto receiving. If you want to come and get up in the front here, I invite you to do so. That's where I'm going to be. Someone will probably have to help me get back up afterwards because I'm sore. <laughs> but I just, I want to invite you into being delighted in this morning. You know the worth of something by what someone's willing to pay for it, and somebody very important paid everything for you. He paid everything for you, and like he said to me that night, he would do it again because you're worth it. Last week we were singing, Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, and he began to sing, child, I love you, child, I love you. ask you to pray even and ask the Lord, bring to mind fathers. I've been fathered by people younger than me. I've been fathered by Jeremy Shuck. I've been fathered by Casey Hahn. I've been fathered by Judd. Jesus, you're a good father. You see every need, every heart need in this room. Every lack. Just like Genesis said, you're bigger. You're bigger than my pain. You're bigger than the thing that I think can't ever happen, won't ever happen. You're a God of miracles. Some of us have more faith for cancer to be healed than we do for our hearts to be healed. Than we do to see our family restored. You're a son, you're a daughter. What other people have said of you is not who you are. What the enemy has tried to tell you in your mind over and over again that the hardest day that you had is who you are or the biggest failure that you've had is who you are. Your father is a king, you are an heir. You are chosen. You are delighted in. He enjoys you and he likes you so much. 